the first conversation I have with every brand is talk to me about the discount percentage that you are offering. Like how much of it is eating into your profits? Because yeah, it's great that you're offering 20 or 25% off, but like if you are not making enough profits, it is going to come back and bite you in the ass. And so I don't shy away from having those hard conversations, right? And I will tell them like, there are better ways to offer value beyond a discount. All right, folks, you know the voice, you know the sound, you know what time it is. You are not your ROAS. Episode 22, we went international for you guys. We scoured the earth for the email queen straight from Pakistan to UAE, back to Pakistan. <laughs> Summer Amwaz, how are you? Welcome. Um, thank you for having me. I am good. How are you? I am fantastic. As always, this is uh, coming from you live in the Austin HQ from our marketing headquarters. Where does this podcast find you today? Uh, Karachi, Pakistan. Oh, how cool. How cool. And so you, because we actually just synced offline a little bit, you grew up in Pakistan, you moved to UAE, and then now you're back in Karachi. Can yes. you guys give me a little color on that? So how, how did that happen? Okay. So I was born, educated, brought up in Pakistan. And then December 2007, I graduate, get married, and move to the UAE within 10 days of these things happening, right? And <laughs> like, it's a lot know, going on. jumped right in. And so like, I moved to the UAE. The original idea is that I'll start working. Um, the recession hasn't hit yet. Everything is like super hyped up in Dubai. I struggled to get a job. And the reason, surprisingly, was because I didn't have a driver's license in public uh, transport at the time in Dubai was pretty bad. And so we decided, okay, let's get a driver's license first. And then I'll start applying for jobs again. We go to get myself registered for driving lessons. And the wait time is six months before I can, I can even start my lessons. Um, oh my and so when I was in Pakistan, I, um, used to blog as a hobby for a citywide blog that would just cover like these events happening in the city. Um, and I, uh, as a favor, I covered a comedy, stand-up comedy show um, for a friend that I was going with. She was uh, an assistant editor in a, in a newspaper and she couldn't make it. And she was like, if you're going, could you please just do a review for me and you'll save me a ton of trouble, right? And so I do it for her and I forget all about it. Three weeks later, there's a check in the mail. And so now in Dubai, I'm thinking, if there's money in writing in a country like Pakistan, there's bound to be something happening in Dubai. And so I do a, like a quick Google search um, for writing jobs online, find a website that's paying, that's going to pay me $10 an article. And I think I've hit, hit the pay dirt, right? Um, turns out what I really hit was a content mill. And that was the start of me as a freelancer, because by the time I got my, finally got my driver's license, like the freelance bug had bitten me big time. And so I just start, have been freelancing ever since. Um, and I got my start as a content writer, 2017, did it for about 10 years. Um, then I got burned out and I didn't yeah. realize I was burned out, but it was so bad. And it got to a point where I was struggling to get out of bed in the morning where I was like, Oh my God, another day just doing content. I don't want to do it. And, um, then I took a course by Joanna Weed called 10 X freelance copywriter. And I realized that if there's anybody who can help me get out of this rut, it's Joe. Um, I, you know, I joined the course, I do the work and I quickly realized that the problem 
isn't that I'm burned out. The problem is that I'm just done with content. And, but then, you know, I'm thinking, okay, writing is the only thing I'm good at. So if not content, then the only thing left is copy. And so I start experimenting with my business, right? And um, one of the very smart things I've, I did already on in my business was like, I treated my own business um, like my, like a client. So if I decided that I wanted to do a copy and I had no experience doing copy, I started writing different types of copy for my own business um, and, and doing these random exercises, right? So sales page, landing pages, website, copy, they pretty much made me cry. But then I met the brilliant, brilliant Val Geiser in uh, 10X freelance copywriter. And she introduced me to the world of email. And there has been no looking back since. How fun. What an interesting journey. What was your favorite part of the UAE? I'm actually heading out to uh, Dubai in a couple weeks. You are going to have so much fun. And the weather should still be nice there. Um, Everything. I just loved. Okay, so... There are two aspects to it, right? I loved that I was safe there. Like I could drive around at 4 a.m. alone and there was no fear, right? And so that part of my life, like moving from a country like Pakistan to Dubai and then experiencing that was just life-changing for me, right? Um, And so that was my favorite part where I could do whatever I want without feeling at risk. And um, the other part was just the people. Like you get to meet so many amazing people from so many different parts of the world. Um, That was, you know, the big thing. And and surprisingly, my husband's family, all his family was in Dubai. And so we had a very, very busy social life. And I love that part, right? So everybody worked like crazy during the week and partied hard during the weekend. And by partying hard, (laughs) I mean, we met. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I can't wait. The, uh, the the pictures look incredible. And to your point, I was really blown away by how much of a melting pot it is. I actually was at a UFC event um, last uh, this last weekend in Houston, and there was two Brits who actually live in Australia that then moved to Dubai, and they live in Dubai. And it was just like this was very unique. Um, cause it's kind of right there too. When you think about it. geographically, I mean, Europe's just a hop, skip and jump away. And like, there's just kind of, um, a lot of access points, um, yeah. there as well. So that's so exciting. Also tolerance, the more different people you meet, the more tolerant you get, the more you realize that how many different perspectives there are out there in the world. Right. And it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what religion you follow. It doesn't matter what countries nationality you have. Being a decent human being is all that matters. Um, and so I just I feel like for anybody to experience life, you need to spend some time in Dubai. I love that. That's incredible. So you touched a little bit on this, but what resources, because you pretty much had a really good grasp, like you're, you're at one of the top tiers in terms of like email, SaaS marketing, etc. How did you gain this mastery? And, and, and do you do all of this in English or in Urdu? Because you speak, is English your first language or no, right? You it's speak technically my well. first language. It's a technically, oh, it is. It yeah, is. It's just not my okay. mother tongue, but it is my first language because I learned to speak, read, and write English at the same time as Urdu. Okay, okay, okay. I didn't, is that pretty normal in Pakistan yes, or no? It is, it is. Oh, okay. I did not know that. So side note, my dad's from Algeria and they're both taught. Um, so the, the language of record, if you will, is Arabic or the first language in the yeah. country is Arabic. But 
pretty much if you're doing any type of business, it's done in French. And so pretty much everybody in um, Algeria that's doing any type of business or I guess you would say kind of the educated class, if you will, is yeah. all bilingual where they both speak Arabic for their cultural kind of deference yeah. to make sure that they keep their culture. But at the same time, they do so much business in Europe, et cetera, that French is really the, the language. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. I, yeah. How cool. I love that. Do you ever have, because those are pretty far apart, but do you ever have that kind of, so uh, another side note, my mom is uh, Mexican and she would um, kind of, you'd get this intertwining sometimes if she would get fired up and stuff like that, where you you would mix English and Spanish. Do you have any of that, or the the languages are too far apart? No, no, that totally happens, right? So, <laughs> totally happens, especially when I'm talking to my kids or my my sisters or my husband. Yeah. Like we're switching yep. languages all the time, and it's so common we don't even notice it anymore. But the first time I realized I do this was when I went to a conference for the first time and I was meeting people in person for the first time. And all of a sudden I'd like say something in Urdu and they'd be giving me like a blank stare. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> let me translate that for you. <laughs> How funny. Oh, I love that. Um, so as you said, you, you talked about Val as a resource. You talked about some courses. Are there any kind of frameworks or anything else that you would recommend for people starting out through their email or copywriting journey that that you found very fruitful to get you to the place you're at today yeah i follow people more than courses so with that oh, i love that um i started subcontracting for her right and another thing that i credit myself with is i don't hesitate to ask questions like i ask a ton of questions um if something is not clear even if it's just a curious like will you tell me why you did something the way you did right because in the beginning i was just doing copywriting for val and she was handing uh, over the strategy to me and everything and so i was would ask her questions and then when i started handing more of the strategy side she would ask me questions like why did you make the strategy decision and then i learned to defend my decisions and justify them while working with her and so she was an incredible mentor who gave me that first um taste of like what it's like working with clients right and uh, talking about email strategy to them and all of that and when i was learning about email i was following Val everywhere like i was devouring her um podcast i was um going through her email teardowns everything that she was doing all the free content that she was putting out i was soaking yeah. it in and learning and then the other thing that i did was um because i got my start in SaaS, so i would sign up for these SaaS companies and i would go through their onboarding and i would just audit them right without knowing seeing anything in, at the back end and i would still see gaps and that made me realize like if i can see gaps without looking at anything in the back back end how many more opportunities are there going to be for me to make a difference for a company like this and so that just kind of gave me that initial boost of confidence that I can do this. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like asking questions, following people and just like, there's a lot of free content out there. Pick two yeah. to three authorities who are sharing their knowledge very generously and just learn from them. And if you want to stand out in their radar, implement what they're talking about, implement what they're teaching and then go and report to them. Like, hey, I tried this. These are the results I got. Or this is the confusions that I, um, I'm, I have. And like, this is the roadblock I'm running against. Can you help me out? And they are more than happy to do that. I, I love that. And I think that's so, so spot on because a lot of times I've, I've found that the people that are above you um, are usually very into, you know, tutelage, mentoring, all that stuff. But it's very hard um, to carve out time for that. Yeah. However, 
when you ask the right question or there's a really actionable insight from your question, you usually get an answer. But when you have this kind of ambiguous kind of like, what do you actually mean? What like they'll usually ghost you. But to your point, it's like, hey, I heard you talked about X, Y, and Z framework or strategy or tactic. I implemented it and it worked out incredible for my consumer. Thank you so much for this, blah, blah, blah. Or I vice versa, I implemented X, Y, and Z and it actually didn't trend in the right direction. Was there something that I was missing or is there something? And giving them kind of an easy answer in a way. And another way to think of it, I guess, is reducing that cognitive load. These people are so busy that honestly, they're going to answer the easiest questions or the questions that are going to generate the highest value for the lowest return of their time. And I I think that's such a brilliant way to approach that. And quite frankly, it's really cool to, uh, it's a great jumping off point where it's like, Hey, I'm actually consuming your content. This isn't just a rando email. Um, and I find you very valuable. I think you're an authority. And I was wondering if you had a view on X, Y, or Z that I just implemented. I love that. It's very, very clever. Um, so with all of this going on, you're also a mom. Yes. Yeah. 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 Two girls. Oh, how fantastic. How do you balance kind of like keeping all of this writing, SAS? Because e- email can be fairly time consuming, especially when you get into yeah. strategies, tactics, as well as the implementation, as well as the copywriting, as well as the revisions, as well as the testing. It starts to compound very quickly on your time. How, how do you make sure that you kind of keep balance and show up in your life for, for the people that matter? By dropping a lot of balls. Like, I I am very honest about this. There are, my kids eat cereal for dinner more nights than what I've met. But it's a delicate balance. Like, if I have calls at night, because I'm in Pakistan, that means I'm eight to 10 hours ahead of, like, the most of the world, right? Right. And so uh, I I can say that my, you know, tell my kids that bedtime is 7 p.m., but which, what kid has ever gone to bed at 7 p.m., right? And so, like, that's when my clock starts ticking. If my calls are starting at 9 p.m., and the kids are in bed by like 7.15, 7.20, I know things are going to be tight. And so then everything just goes out the window. And I'm like, okay, cereal for dinner. Okay, you can watch, you know, an extra hour of screen time. Okay, as long as there's no fighting and nobody's knocking on my door while I'm on the call, I don't care what you're doing. It quickly derails. Oh, um, I love that. But um, it's hard. But I've learned to be kinder to myself, right? So it's um, if it's just not happening in a day, what you know, the way I want things to happen, as a mom, it I don't lose it anymore <laughs> because nobody wants monster mom. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so just by dropping a lot of balls, I will be very honest. Yeah, I, I actually love that because I think yeah, there's a lot, especially with people high performers. Um, you do have this, and that it's kind of the double-edged sword, right? Like that pressure you put on yourself gives you the ambition to get you to where you are. But at the same time, if you don't balance it out and to your point, drop some balls or do some things to alleviate that pressure, it can consume you. And then I've seen a lot of times high performers just get paralyzed because there's just so much to do. And there's actually a a thought experiment called Bjorn's donkey. And it's basically too long, didn't read. There's a donkey in the center, equidistant between water and uh, food, and it's hungry and starving, but it doesn't know which one to do. So it just dies. And so I, I think you can get into that place if you don't, to your point, drop those balls and just life's about trade-offs and you have to make trade-offs sometimes for what's yeah. going to be best for um, you and not only the short run, but the long run. I love that. Absolutely. And I also want to add one more thing, support system. I have an amazing That's- support system. So if I don't cook someday, if I don't have the chance, my husband will come home from work. He comes very late, but 
and he sees nothing's wrong, that's fine. He will take care of it. Um, I don't have to worry about home chores, anything, but also my parents and my siblings. Um, massive, massive support system. So I am due to travel to the US at the end of March to attend a conference. And um, the agreement, or like my husband and I were like, one parent has to stay available at all times because I have two girls in two different schools. They have two different school timings. So we're talking two different bedtimes, two different meal times, all of that, right? It's, it's crazy. And so I, whenever I travel, he takes time off work. This year, he's unable to. And so now I canceled my plans. I was like, you know what? It's already stressful with COVID and everything. Let's not go. And then I realized I have to, because the next two to three years, I won't be able to go to this particular conference because Ramadan will be happening. Right. Um, I will be fasting and traveling, conferencing, while fasting and jet lagged is not a good combination. No. Um, and so I decided to go, and now my parents are picking up the slack. My sister is going to try to take time off, but it's iffy because she has just changed departments in her company, and um, you know she's not sure that she'll get time off. So now we're, we're like, my, my mom and dad are going to take over. So my husband's going to drop the little one to school before going to work. And then my dad's going to come in time to pick her up from when the school bus drops her off, feed her, help her with her homework. Then my mom's going to come over um, like in time for like my older daughter to come from school so that she can give both girls dinner at the same time, put the little one to bed, and then they'll leave. Like my parents are over, right? My mom's in her 60s. My dad's hitting 70. The burden that I'm putting on them, the guilt that I'm feeling is insane, but they're they're not willing to listen to me not going when yeah. they've realized how important it is, right? So kudos to the support system I have. Like if I was in Dubai, I wouldn't have had the support system and I wouldn't have been unable to grow my business to the levels that I've been able to. I love that. What does it say? It takes a village, they say, people. So get that yeah. support system in there. And, and it takes I a think village it's... for a woman to pursue her career. Not even yeah. succeed, pursue. Yeah, I totally agree. And being able to... Um, also have those people that you know essentially you don't have to vet and they already care about you right like with your parents or close family members where it's not this kind of transactional relationship where it's just this thing that goes deep i love that okay let's get nerdy on some email summer um okay let's jump into the first question so what are kind of some of the best parts and hardest parts of running successful email campaigns and email campaigns and strategies like what are some of your favorite parts of doing what you do and what are some of the more challenging parts so for me in SaaS, the favorite part and the even SaaS and e-commerce, right? The favorite part and the challenging part are one and the same. I specialize, like I'm happiest when I'm trying to solve a tricky onboarding or retention problem. And I am happiest when a brand comes to me, when an e-commerce brand comes to me and say, hey, we've got like, let's say X number of people who are engaged with our list, but who haven't bought, right? And either in over a year or at all. And we're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and so these are the kind of problems that I like solving, right? Everybody can set up a lifecycle email. Everybody can create a promotional campaign is the tricky problems that are not visible, uh, to somebody who's just observing a brand that really interests me. Like I love diving deep into things and, uh, for, for whatever reason, um, in the e-commerce world, at least I have been for the past year attracting more and more women and, uh, POC owned brands which means these are traditionally bootstrap brands and we are just talking about stuff so much beyond emails, right? So when iOS 15 rolled out, 
I was a little miffed about the fact that everybody on Twitter was like painting such a rosy picture of how like everybody will survive and it's not that yeah. bad and all and you just have to focus on first party data and all of that. But the brands that were reaching out to me were telling me that they were being decimated, right? Yeah. Their their ads were getting more expensive, their um emergency cash res- cash reserves were being used up to pay salaries and all of that, and to the point where they were stopping all ads and now they were yeah. struggling. Um, and so I get to see that part. And then we get deep dive, uh, dive deeper into this stuff, right? Okay, so this is a problem that's beyond email, but let's yeah. see what we can do. And I am so privileged uh, and I'm like so honored that I get to see that inside um, view of like struggles that founders have. Um, and the stories I hear, especially of women-owned uh, brands and the stuff they have to put up with, it is insane. Those are not my stories to tell, but it's it's an insane world out there. Yeah, definitely challenging. I love that you approach that from such a holistic uh, point of view. There's this really interesting uh, kind of dichotomy between missionaries and mercenaries. And I feel like you have that really nice balance because a lot of times a freelancer is always almost seen as a mercenary, right? Like I give you money and you do the thing and you go kill the thing and bring me back resources or, or sales or conversions or what have you. And it sounds like you partner at a much deeper level where you, you really learn about that mission that, that that founder is trying to promote and you understand kind of, again, at that holistic level where you're going to be able to connect deeper to the consumer, not only on the value prop, but understand the, the totality of the business and really where you can make leeway or not. And versus just to your point, you know, setting up the good best practices of life cycle flows, um, getting your campaigns out once or twice a week, et cetera, headline writing. Like, again, all these are important, but if there are first principle factors that are stopping those things, you're just going to have knock on effects where if those first principles aren't in place and you don't understand them well, it's going to be challenging to get anything to work. Because like you said, you are dealing with problems that necessarily or that aren't necessarily um, email problems in nature. They're just manifesting at that email level versus being able to dive deep into the business where it might be a business model problem or it might be uh, a product placement problem, an inventory issue or what have you. That's really clever. Yeah, absolutely. And that starts like the first conversation I have with every brand is talk to me about the discount percentage that you are offering. Like how much of it is eating into your profits? Because yay, it's great that you're offering 20 or 25% off, but like if you are not making enough profits, it is going to come back and bite you in the ass. And so I don't shy away from having those hard conversations, right? And I will tell them like there are better ways to offer value beyond a discount. And I am always like, let's, and and I get pushed back. There is, I will not deny that. Like there's like a gasp, almost silent gasp that I see. Like I can see the the expressions from on on the other side of the screen. Right. And I'm like, listen, let's treat discounts like a reward rather than like um, a bribe. And so when they do something that we want them to do, that is when we reward them for the discount. So discounts for second purchases. Yes when they buy at full price, right? And I'm like, um, and, and it helps me to be scrappy, right? Because I'm working with bootstrap yeah. brands, I get to figure out how to offer a discount without actually offering a discount. That means bundle offers, that means subscriptions, 100%. that means um, uh, making an offer that will increase the average order value rather than just discounting individual products. And so that is the fun 
I have with emails and I love that I get to do it. I love that. And I love how rooted in the economics you are of it because I, I see that time and time again. So I came before Triple Well, I, I came from the agency life and um, I think not only email, but I think affiliate programs are notorious for this, where it's like, not only are they offering deep discounts, you're offering deep discounts to people that love you, that would happily give you full price. Like, why? What is the point of that? Like, and so much more success, or I found much more success in terms of what you're talking about, where it's like, let's raise the AOV, let's bundle things together, buy one, get one free. These other things that you can do versus just taking a flat 20 or 30% off because you're the best customer we have. Like, I like the idea of how you talk about it, where it's a bribe. And I mean, there's a certain aspect of like, yes, if you need cash flow, maybe discounts can help. But at the same yeah. time, like if you're looking for profit, like it's going to be challenging to get because the other thing is you might have paid for that person on some paid media or an ad. So now you have this acquisition cost on top of the discount and like you're just hacking away at your economics. And by the yeah. time you get to the net profit level, it can be really challenging. And then the other thing I've found is. Price is very rarely the reason people don't buy. It's more so because they don't value the product or they don't have the resources. And that that's, uh, you just have this gut reaction. Oh, it's too expensive. Well, is it? Or am I not doing a good enough job to understand, convey yeah. the value proper? Why your life is going to be so much better if you do buy XYZ product? Uh, oh, I love that. And also um, focusing on what is important to the customer, right? So yes. I was consulting with, with this skincare brand and they had a free sample um, for first time customers and all they had to do was pay shipping and the conversions weren't all that great. So we flipped the script. We, I think we, um, priced the sample at $14, um, and made the shipping free and the conversions just soared. Right. And that is my favorite story to tell anytime a brand is like, no, but discounts are important. And, and, um, I will say that I have been proven wrong certain times, right? It wasn't until I started working with smaller brands that I realized that discounts are important to grow your email list. So if a brand is like early stage where they don't have like the 15, 20, 25,000 email subscribers to start really start making a difference with email, I'll be like, okay, let's put a hard cap on like, we're going to offer discounts until we have 15,000 subscribers. But the minute we hit that number, that's good enough to start giving us dividends from email. We start changing the offers and testing the offers and seeing what value-based offers can convert better. Cause I'd much rather have fewer subscribers who are buying more with like better average auto value than like just tire kickers basically who are just oh. signing up for that 20% discount. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's exactly the path. And um, ultimately, you know, there's a certain aspect, especially at those early stages where you don't really need to have a bunch of customers. Like ideally you want a bunch of customers, but you really need to understand like who your core market is and who are the people that are going to evangelize and really want the product. And so you really want to build the product really for that, like 70% of people, not necessarily the 30% that are like, you know, cause a lot of times what I've seen in the past is you can have a loud minority where it's like, yes, I understand what you're saying is totally valid, but you're just not the target market we're going after right now. We just don't have the resources to satiate 100% of everybody. And so we need to make sure that the 50, 60, 70% of people that are using us love us and everybody else yeah. will get to you when we can get to you. But at the same time, like those 70% of people will then enable you with the resources to grow and then possibly go up market, down market, what have you, and get into those other percentages and cohorts. But if you, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is a friend to everybody is a friend to nobody. And I think that yeah. you can translate that, especially to early stage businesses where um, 
the economics are so important and the the margin of error is so small because the balance sheet is just so svelte that you really can't you know if you blow ten thousand dollars this month that in the first two weeks that was your whole monthly budget and you're just like well what do i do now whereas you know that's a rounding error for most companies and like okay that's fine and then furthermore exacerbated is that those other companies can make bigger bets to make up for those mistakes where it's like those small companies can't like, where am I going to get another 10, 20 K to make this bet that doesn't pay off. So I, I think you're just so spot on there. I love that. Um, when you're running your accounts and you're running for your clients, how do you measure success? Oh, in very simple terms, it needs to be better than what they were doing before working for me. Like mm -hmm. I never promise a certain conversion. I like, it has to be a climbing scale, right? So if it's not, or if it's plateauing, then we dive deep into why something is not working. But because I specialize in lifecycle emails, like my first order of business is setting up their automated lifecycle emails and then building out that entire email journey before even thinking about stats and optimizing it, right? So um, the first thing I do is like, the, I call them like the money-making email sequences, welcome, abandoned cart, post-purchase, all of that. Um, and I'm like, let's set those up first so yeah. that the money can start rolling in. And I turn it into phases, right? I Because I specialize in lifecycle emails, I don't do commercial campaigns or for brands that I haven't set lifecycle emails for because I feel like there's a jarring difference in the way I approach email and in the way like the rest of the world does email because I'm all about email experience. And when you're a smaller brand, email experience is the one way you stand out. Right. Yeah. Nike can afford to send tone deaf emails to like men's shoes to women's and nobody would care. Right. But if a smaller brand will stand out by segmenting their products by gender, but also realizing that sometimes people buy gifts and that's OK. And so let's give them the option. One of my favorite ways to um, that I tell brands to stand out is create different versions of your post-purchase sequence, right? Especially your order confirmation. So the conversation that you're going to have with somebody who's buying from you for the first time is going to be different in the order confirmation email than somebody who's buying from you for a second time is going to be different than somebody who's buying from you from the fifth time, right? They're VIP by that point. You're going to treat them differently. You're going to lay out the red carpet. You're going to treat them like a friend. You're going to invite them into your house and like just say, hey, you know, the drill by now, you know, this is what you're imparting the same information, but you're just using a different tone and voice. Similarly, abandoned cart emails, they are so creepy, right? Hey, you forgot something. And then if there's an I emoji involved, I feel unsafe in my own inbox, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, you know what? Let's add a PS at the bottom that says, hey, did you mean to abandon a cart? We do that too. Click here to let us know so that we don't send you any more reminders. How easy is it to put your subscribers into the driving seat of their email experience and then you elevate it and then you stand out. And this is how you create raving lifelong fans who will see you through a pandemic. Um, and you won't wish that you were a toilet paper brand at that time. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. I really love what you said there, too, because I think what comes across is you start to get away from almost a brand and you start to write like a person to a person. Right. Yeah. And I think that like you can, I, I just had Eli Wyson, who's a this fantastic customer experience, customer success person. And um, that was one of the things that he said was really helpful is when you can break that barrier from brand to person and really transform it into person to person where there, there's just this relatable, like, Hey, I'm just doing my job here, but at the same time, like 
I respect your time. I care about your time. And I don't really care if you buy or not buy. Like you do, but at the same time, like what I care about is you're having a great experience here. It's almost like hosting a party. And if you get to the party and nobody tells you like where the drinks are or nobody tells you like where the music is or where the restrooms are, or whatever, and you're just trying to like figure stuff out and all the while people are selling to you, it's just a, just yeah. not a really great experience versus like, hey, you know, obviously we're here to make money, but at the same time, we're here to make sure that you're having a delightful experience. And here's a way to make your experience more delightful in the future. And if that is what you prefer, here's a button. Just click that. I, I think that is so spot on. I really love the idea of segmenting your customers post-purchase because I think a lot of people don't see it that way. And I think there's a lot of runway there for a lot of people because there's other ways that you can get people involved in your community that are non-monetary. And so for us, an example at Triple Whale, like the end of our funnel isn't somebody actually buying our product. Our funnel ends at the evangelism stage where somebody's either writing content for us, somebody's either coming on the podcast, somebody's running a channel in our Narwhal Nation, our exclusive Slack group, or somebody is just evangelizing for us in, 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 in public. And so that's kind of the end of our funnel, not necessarily once we get them to purchase and we get their money. We want to make sure that they're still um, you know, excited about the product. And the more you get that and build that in kind of with the goal in mind, it, it does change your uh, your touch points and the way you strategize around that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I think I went off on a tangent and forgot the original question. So if I haven't answered the original question. No, you've been doing great. Oh, no, this is fantastic. You're, 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 my wheels are spinning. I'm over taking notes. I love it so much. <laughs> um, it was how do you measure success? And you, you hit it on the nose. It yeah. was fantastic. Um, two quick more questions, then we'll get into the rapid fire. What's the biggest mistake you see when you're doing email audits, when you're taking over accounts? Oh. Either biggest or most common. The most common one is lack of segmentation. Yep. Right? Um, it's just everybody's blasting everybody. And I'm like, yeah, let's not do that. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then they wonder, like, why our conversions are not all that great. And I'm like, yeah, that's because you're sending these emails to, like, everybody. And you're making your unsubscribes, like, really hard. And, like, there's a bunch of stuff. But, like, the lack of segmentation is the big one. I love that. I think that's definitely something... Um, what is your favorite ESP? Is it Clavio? Is it is that where you do most of the hard work, or do you kind of just uh, uh, so I'm email whatever. strategy and copy only. I do not okay. touch implementation. So oh, beautiful. My beautiful. thing is when I am creating email strategies, I am I sit down on a call with my client when I'm presenting the strategy, and I'm like, yeah. we need to work through this. This is what I want to do. Can your ESP and tech stack handle it? If Love not, it. you need to tell me because then it's my job as a strategist to find a way through to whatever limitations and roadblocks that you're going to tell me about and get you to those conversions, right? And so Love I don't it. care what ESP you're on. I don't, I don't have a favorite. Oh, I love that. How fun. Um, okay, last question in value add. How do you get stakeholders to care and invest in email? So when, when you get, you know, somebody comes to you and says, hey, I'm really excited about email. I want to bring you on as our, our email strategist. But the CEO or a CMO or whoever who's going to sign your check is wary about, you know, spending into email strategy, et cetera. Is there any kind of tactics you use or any type of uh, mental models to give those people more um, ammunition to take to their higher ups to make sure that you can come onto the team? Or do you not just deal with that? Um, I I always get on a call with them. 
right? And, yeah, yeah. and the reasons for it are twofold. One, I always want to see what kind of people I'm dealing with because of yeah. who I am, that's very important to me, right? Yeah. So I never say no to a discovery call. I never say no to getting on a call with somebody because I want to know how you react to me. Um, that's important uh, because if you don't believe in me, if you don't believe in my expertise, you are not going to do... I could, I could give you um, like a roadmap to a million dollars in email sales and you wouldn't do it. Um, and because you wouldn't believe in me. And the other thing is I try not to convince them because I want to mm -hmm. understand why they feel that way. What happened for them to feel like email is not important, right? What have they tried in, previously? And so it's a conversation and I leave them at that conversation and I tell them like, this is how I approach email. If it resonates with you, let's talk further. If not, that's totally cool. Like there are other amazing email strategists who will, you know, um, you can work with. I, I love that. I have never heard that before, but I'm going to steal that. I'm not trying to convince you. I think that's a really great mental model for being able to pitch in discovery calls. And then I also like the idea of the resonance because there's there's a certain aspect of, uh, again, coming from the agency life where um, I would get pushback on either strategy, implementation, et cetera. And then they're like, well, why don't you do it like this? And why don't you do it like that? And it ultimately always just devolves into, well, like, why are you paying me all this money? <laughs> like, if that's what yeah. you want to do, like, then do that. Yeah. But I'm the expert in the space. Like, if you weren't the expert in the space, you wouldn't be giving me all this money. And so I think that the way you approach those discovery calls really circumvents a lot of that because you just would never, never take on that client where it's like they're, they're, the, there's not, not enough confidence, belief, whatever the descriptor you want to use there is. And then that's just going to manifest into, you know, some negative interactions down the road that, aren't necessarily going to be in your control where it's like you could be doing these things right but to your point there's a bit of a freudian aspect there where it's like why do you feel this you know why show me on the on the doll where they hurt something you something has had to have happened for you to exactly. feel like it's not worth it right exactly you must have tried something in, before you must have seen something or like somebody must have told you something and also one of the things i do is i walk them through my process i literally show them how i'm going to build out your email journey map how it's going to be a live document inside like a tool called whimsical mm -hmm. and how we're going to take it into phases because i strategize in life cycle emails one of the things i do is like i map out the entire email journey from like the minute somebody signs up for your email newsletter to like the whole win back sunset all of that and so i'm like this is what i do this is what i will create for your brand but whether you work with me or not these are the two to three questions you need to be asking yourself every time you think about email. What is that big conversion that we want? What happens when somebody does what we want and what happens when they don't do what we want? Because don't quote me on this, but at least 80% of your people will not convert. And so you need to have a backup plan for them. And so sending emails for the sake of sending emails because somebody said, you know, um, one subscriber is worth $44 or whatever. Um, <laughs> It's not, um, you know, emails don't go to chain. Yes. You have to make them work for you. And so you need to be asking yourself these questions the next time you're making decisions, whether you work with me or not. And leaving them to think about it, I'm probably smoothing the road for somebody else in the future, right? And I think that's, you know, that's my job done because that brand does need email help. Um, and so I want to do my part in educating them and then if, if, you know, I work with them, that's great. If not, you know, there, there are almost, I'm going to say billions of brands out there throughout the world. Um, I will not spend my time and energy convincing somebody to work with me. That's fabulous. I, I love, love, love that. And that's not to say people, you know, not everybody's at Samara's uh, 
path where sometimes, you know, you got to do what you got to do when you got to do it. But ultimately what I've seen, and this is coming from that area of having to take projects that aren't great. um, A bad client can scuttle a small shop really quickly where they pay late, they get out of scope, they, they, they leave bad review, whatever. It can just be really challenging. So the quicker you can get to the economic stability of being able to say no and not have to quote unquote convince, I think is something that is, it's a, it's a yeah. really big goal. And that's oh, I really when say, you hit that like, step I've change. Reached, I've reached this level by going through the fire. Right? Like, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it's not that I woke up one day and just decided <laughs> I'm not going to work with anybody who doesn't <laughs> see the importance of working with me. Um, it's because I have, felt my reputation at stake. I have felt that frustration of not being taken seriously, of seeing a founder or a CMO make that mistake uh, and then blame it on on the email strategist or copywriter when those emails didn't convert, right? And so um, one of the first things I did was started building a um, a safety net for myself. And I went, like, I call this repellent marketing, where I say no more than I say yes. And it only started when I had six months of solid cash in my bank to survive if nobody worked with me. That's great. Right. And I will tell you this. um, Early last year, I was December 2020, Jan 2021. I was burned out. Right. Because I was saying yes a lot more because I wanted to make money. I wanted to hit those six figures, you know, grow as a business, all of that. But I burned out. And then I sat down, worked with my business coach, and we revamped the way I did business. Right. We focused on the parts that I didn't want to do. And I found partners who loved doing what I didn't want to do. And I just focused on the email strategy part, which is what I love. And what happened was I ended up tripling my weights. So we went from like less than 10K to over 25K for a project, right? And I will not lie. I got laughed out of the room by the first three to four SaaS companies that I told that price to. But because I'd done the work, because I was burned out, because I knew that I didn't want to feel that way again, my gut was telling me to stick to it, right? And the first company to say yes to my newer pricing was HubSpot. How about that? And so listen to your gut. If it's telling you it's not worth it and you have that safety net for six months, own your authority, own your brilliance, and you will find the people that come to you. And coming on to podcasts, you know, Talking about all of this on Twitter, that is my way of educating people who are thinking about working with me. Because a lot of times now, like I'm a Muslim, um, I'm, I'm Muslim. So there are certain things about my religion that I follow, like I'm a practicing Muslim. One of the things that I do is I never work with alcohol brands, gambling companies, arms and ammunitions, um, and, you know, um, smoking brands. So cigarettes and vapes and all of that are out. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that on my about page. Right. And so I'm vocal that these are the companies that I do not work with. And so I had a non-alcoholic brand reach out to me, but I was still iffy because I didn't know anything about the non-alcoholic industry. And my first question to them was, um, what percentage of alcohol do you have? You know, like it's non-alcoholic, but there have to be some element for you to call it a cocktail or a mocktail. Or you're not calling it a mocktail, you're calling it a cocktail. And so they had their signs ready for me. Right. And they said, we reached out to you because we read that and we know how important it is to you. And they had the signs ready and I ended up working with them. And so being vocal about the way you approach email, the way you do business just attracts the right kind of people to you. I think that's fantastic. I love that idea of repellent marketing 
especially to, uh, again, when you're running a smaller shop, you know, if you're on discovery calls all day, the quality of those calls need to be high because if not, you going back to your tire kicker analogy, like you don't have time to be spending 30, 45 an hour with somebody that had no intention to buy. And, and furthermore, if they're not going to be, if there's a non-starter already, there's just no point in wasting that time where it's like, you can pay me for like a consulting hour if you want, but I'm not going to work with you. And so there's not going to be any type of, uh, you know, further relationship down the road. So why even, it's almost the, the equivalent of selling to somebody that's not buying. Like that's the worst place you want to be. And so I, I, I love that repellent marketing. I got you, you give me all these little one liners here. I love it. Um, okay. You made it into the rapid fire. The last segment. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Let's get into it. Uh, I know you're not into paid media, but paid media overrated, underrated. I feel like if a brand can find a way to survive and grow without it, by all means, that needs to be a goal for a founder. Like, what if every paid media failed for us? What is our backup plan? So I don't care. Like, I have no opinion on it being overrated or underrated. I want you to come up with a backup plan. What are you going to do if you couldn't market with paid media? This is something that because I work with smaller brands, bootstrap brands, they're in early stage. They're struggling. They don't have yeah. the money for paid ads. And they're struggling to get traffic on their site. And when you search stuff about growing email lists and stuff, everybody's talking about pop-ups and offers and all that. And nobody's talking about the traffic that needs to come to your website so that it will convert into subscribers, right? And so that is my latest challenge. Like I need to figure out how to help these brands attract um, traffic without ads. Painful, That's a really good question. It is, it is yeah. something that I'm, I don't have the answer to, but it is something that I wish founders and brands would, you know, have like a backup plan for it. I love it. And I know uh, you, you're you not in the ESP space, but this is rapid fire. So I do ask the crazy questions. Clavio, uh, underrated, overrated? Perfectly rated. It's a great Ooh, ESP. That. It's a great platform. Yeah, I love it too. Um, optimizing email pop-ups, overrated, underrated? Necessary. Why? If you aren't, you should be. So again, I don't know. Overrated. Ask me about offers. Ask me about specific offers, whether they're <laughs> underrated or overrated, and I will tell you. But like these are necessary things, right? Um, there's no overrated or underrated. It needs to be optimized. I love it. Uh, Dubai overrated, underrated. Heaven on earth. Oh. Like for me, at least, my ten years there were like absolutely brilliant. The happiest I've ever been. The and I, I, I grew up in Pakistan, right? So yeah. patriarchal society, yeah. parents were very, uh, parents were conservative and very worried about like, my dad had four daughters, no sons, the whole, I don't know if, if you're familiar with, with that mindset. But so it was um, hard for my parents to raise us in, in such a... Phone, let's see if she comes back on. Oh, we made it all the way through the rapid fire. So close, so close. Well, that's all good. We can call it there. Still a fabulous episode. Samar Awas, thank you so much. Um, we had some technical difficulties. We are going Austin to Karachi, so there is going to be some distance there. But fantastic episode. We did get cut off a little bit in the rapid fire, but is what it is. 22 episodes in, you're bound to have some sort of hiccup. 
Thank you again for tuning in. If you do want to get more involved with Triple Whale, you can do trytriplewhale.com. Uh, we are on the Twitters at Triple Whale. And then we have a fantastic newsletter called Whale Mail that you can subscribe to. We send out emails every Tuesday and Thursday, and they're fantastic. Thanks again so much for tuning in, everyone. Sorry about the technical difficulties. We really appreciate you subscribing to You're Not Your ROAS. We also have another podcast called Ad Spend. It's me, Cody, and Ash going crazy on silly awesomeness in DTC and marketing tips, tricks, how to deploy ad spend at a high level, efficiently, effectively, and profitably. Um, all right, cool. That's going to be it from us. Episode 22 in the books. Again, sorry for the uh, technical difficulties, but we are thousands, thousands of miles away. So thanks again. And we'll talk to everyone on the flip. Okay. Bye-bye.